At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Well, before you sit down, and I know you want to sit down, I know you want to sit down, but I just have been thinking, what is the proper response to God after not being able to gather for 20 weeks to be in this place this morning? Come on, Woodside, Detroit. Give God shouts of praise. Come on and give him a shout. Hallelujah. Let the halls hear us. Let the streets hear us. Let heaven hear us as we say thank you, Jesus, for you are good. Amen and amen. And now you can be seated in the presence of the Lord. When I came this morning, I was wearing a sweater. Uh, but a good thing is, is I brought a backup. So always be prepared. My, my heart is full to overflowing this morning just to be able to um, be in this beloved city uh, that I carry in my heart to be with family here. I love you outside Detroit and I'm so grateful that God has saw fit to allow us to regather together again. Um, I have no idea if we are uh, broadcasting through uh, Facebook, but if we are, I do want to formally welcome our friends who are watching that way. And uh, praise God, whether we are gathering together in homes or in this building, how many know that the presence of the Lord is with his people? How many praise God for that? Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, um, also on my heart is your beloved pastor. I thank God for Pastor Tim. What an honor it is to be able uh, to do life and ministry uh, with my brother and friend. And as Pastor Kevin uh, prayed, as uh, Patrick prayed, I'm so grateful that in the midst of uh, ministry and life, that the battle has breaks, that God gives us breaks in the midst of the battle, that there are times when we get a, a respite. There are times when God allows us to be able to refresh our weary souls. Um, we as pastors uh, may have titles, but that's the only difference, maybe, uh, between us and anyone else. Uh, the, the pressures of life, the heavinesses, all of those things are very much real. And so um, we kind of, I don't know how many of you uh, grew up watching WWF. Anybody grew up watching wrestling? You don't have to admit it. You can kind of just lift your hand just a little bit. But, uh, you know, I used to love tag team wrestling. And uh, tag team wrestling, you know how it looked. You know, it was all make-believe, but it felt so real when you were younger. But, you know, one guy be in a ring and he's fighting. Next thing you know, he's beat up and beat down and he stumbles over to the corner and tags his partner and kind of jumps in. The partner jumps in for a few minutes until that guy can get relief. You know what I'm talking about. So right now I kind of feel like Pastor Tim's tag team partner and uh, I get a chance to kind of fill in for just a moment while he gets uh, some rest so he can come back and fight with you for this beautiful city. How many know that God loves Detroit, that Jesus died for Detroit, that he is sending revival to this great city? Come on, people of God. How many believe that, that God is on the move in this city? Amen? 
And even as we prayed about the distress, the confusion, all of those things that seem to uh, cause this moment to feel so out of control. If you ever feel like life is out of control, if you ever feel like circumstances are uh, in, in chaos and confusion, just read Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, you read these words, that as the nations rage, that God sits on his throne and he laughs. Because he knows that everything is working together just as he planned. Even the chaos of this moment is meant to cause us to long for something beyond this world. This world is never going to be a utopia. I don't care uh, what we do down here, we will never be able to create a and that's why the great Saint Augustine was true when he says, you've created man for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. How many thank God that we can have peace and we know his name. His name is Jesus. Amen. We know the name of peace and his name is Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to keep preaching until you say amen. Here's the way it works for me, that the more you say amen, the quicker I preach. So um, with that being said, I'm really grateful. Can we give the team and the leadership here a big, big hand? All of those who helped. You guys just have phenomenal uh, servant-hearted uh, leaders, and they put together a lot of pieces for today, not the least of which are the kids' bags, and uh, I see a few little kids here. Now, I've been at various campuses, and I've seen the kids' bags that each campus has, and I got to just kind of brag and say, I think Detroit might have the best kids' bag in all of the campuses. Now, Here's the way you get one of those kids' bags, whether or not you're a kid or an adult, uh, is that there are kids' notes. It's notes that were uh, at a table in the lobby, and so as you came in, you just kind of fill that out. There's even a coloring section, and the coloring section is meant for children or adults who like to color. Any adults who like to color out there, there we go. Tell the truth and shame the devil. And so uh, those sheets are available for you as well. Today I get a chance to talk to you about um, repentance. I get a chance to talk to you about restoration. I get a chance to talk to you about uh, forgiveness. And we're going to be looking in the Psalms to see what God's word has for us uh, this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You are faithful. Open our eyes. We desire to see Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been uh, maybe challenged by God or his word to forgive someone who has hurt you, uh, wounded you, mistreated you, but it was very clear to you that they were not uh, repentant of what they did, they were not seeking an apology, uh, they were not broken over their offenses against you. Have you ever been in that situation before? Now, some of you don't have to contemplate that for a long time. Some of you are living through that situation 
right now. Uh, I can think of a particular situation in my own life in which the wounds are still really, really fresh. And one of the things that we discover whenever there is the call to forgive and the absence of repentance is that there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness means that I release you from owing me. I release you from uh, the debt, maybe, of your sin. But reconciliation is something altogether different. That means closeness. That means the restoration of relationship. And yes, the Bible calls us to forgive, but there's something that has to happen in order for there to be reconciliation, without which there can be no restoration of closeness or relationship, and that is repentance. In order for there to be the restoration of relationship, there has to be repentance. Does that make sense to anyone? Right? And, and we understand that on a very deep and visceral level when it comes to our horizontal relationships. In particular, we understand it when it comes to how someone has hurt or offended us. But now I want to flip the coin for just a moment. And I want you to think about your relationship with the Lord. And I want you to think about for just a moment how our sin separates us from his peace that we just sang about, from his joy. And so often we um, um, celebrate the forgiveness of God while still feeling distant from him. And I want you to think about for just a moment, not the offenses of others towards you, which we're kind of culturally conditioned to magnify, but I want you to think about for just a moment our guiltiness before God. And what do you do with your guilt? And even now, as we sit here today, in my life and in yours, if we think long enough, there are areas of guilt where we know we have blown it, we have missed the mark, we have messed up really, really bad. And there are some of you that are sitting in here today, and you even question whether or not God can forgive you because of how bad you've missed it. Today I want to talk about the road to restored relationship with the Lord. And we're going to look at a beautiful poetic psalm, Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles or your, um, or your mobile devices, just turn there with me, Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, uh, what we have here is a story of King David. Uh, king David is arguably um, the greatest king of Israel's history. He is a shepherd, he is a poet, he is a psalmist, he is a warrior, and this psalm is written by him, but it's not written by him during one of the mountaintop moments of his life. Imagine having God instruct you to write a song, a poem that would be captured for all of history in the moment of your sin 
and your brokenness. But there is something beautiful about David's brokenness, and we're going to see it in just a moment. But by way of um, maybe just uh, recapping, hopefully you've been following along even as you've watched at home or maybe at another campus, but we've been in a new series. It's called Assembly Required. And in this new series, we've been journeying through the Psalms, and we've been talking about the beauty of coming together. And even when we are in a season where the doors of the church buildings may be closed, my prayer is that we will never lose that uh, fire in our hearts for the gathering together with the people of God. I mean, it's a special thing to gather together with the people of God to lift up the name of our God and declare the fame of our God. How many know that's a beautiful thing, right? And may that fire never go out in our hearts. And what the Psalms continues to remind us of, uh, the Psalter, it continues to remind us of the beauty of the gathering together of God's people, how community around the, the, uh, the grace of God has always been the unique gift of God to his people. Outside of Christ, maybe the greatest gift is the body of believers, the community of God's people to gather together in moments like this. And when you look at the Psalms, what you're reading is Israel's ancient songbook, their, their ancient hymnal, if you will. In many ways, these, uh, these psalms, these poems and songs and hymns have been preserved for us, and they become the hymn book of the church as well. Well, as we look at this particular psalm, it is a psalm of remorse, it is a psalm of regret, it is a psalm of brokenness, but... Even though it is a psalm written by a particular man about a particular moment in his life of sin, I want you to think about it for just a moment. It was captured for Israel to sing and recite corporately. Now, why would God have David pen about his sin and his role to restore relationship and then put it into Israel's hymn book so that Israel, when they gathered throughout the centuries and the church later, as we gather together, would recite this story for thousands of years to come? Could it be that God was using David as an example for us? knowing that we too would have moments where we have offended God, moments where we are guilty before Jesus, moments where we feel so separated from his peace and from his joy and from relationship with him that we would need a roadmap for how to get back. And that's what we find here. Now, one more word before I read uh, the psalm. Backdrop for this psalm is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, I don't have time to explore all of that terrain, but let me just summarize it for you for just a moment. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 records a time in David's life where it says in the scriptures that in the springtime when the kings would go out for war, David stayed in his palace. 
Now, this is interesting because David was a warrior, not just by preference, but by calling. This is what a king would do. In particular, David, he throughout the psalm says, Lord, you teach my hands to war. This was his profession. So it was as if God was saying that David was shirking his duty. It was his responsibility to lead his troops out at war, but this time he wasn't where he was supposed to be. There's a whole sermon in there about being where you're supposed to be. Your mom told you, but so I won't have to remind you. But um, David was not where he was supposed to be, but he was on the rooftop of the palace, which is the tallest building in the city, which overlooks other rooftops, which happened to be often where people would bathe. And as he looks over, he sees a woman bathing, an attractive woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. And uh, lusting for her, he sins for her. There's one huge problem among many, and that is she is already married. She's married to one of David's loyal troops, uh, loyal soldiers. His name is Uriah. Uriah is away in the war, fighting in the war where David should have been. Uriah is away representing his king, being loyal to his king, while his king is violating his covenant. And so he calls uh, Bathsheba to his house. Now, depending on how you read the text, he either seduced her or even worse. And he impregnates her. And so now she has to bear the shame. She has to bear the shame. And, and I think that it is, has always been true that even worse than the sin is the cover-up of the sin. There's a note there for all of us, right? It's better to come clean early because one lie begats another, begats another, and a sin delayed only grows worse. Time does not heal sin. Only repentance does. And so she goes back to her house knowing that her husband will discover this. She's vulnerable. David is vulnerable for public, uh, dare I say, even national shame. And so then he devises a, an even worse plan. It gets even worse, friends. He devises a plan to send Uriah to the front line of the war, knowing that Uriah would get killed. He plots to kill one of his loyal soldiers. There's a lot of details in between uh, the facts of the story that I'm sharing with you. You read it for yourself. And so Uriah dies in war. And David takes Bathsheba to be his wife after Uriah's death. And if we ended in um, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the end of that chapter, you would think that's the end of the story. But there's a phrase at the end of verse 27, and that is what David did displeased the Lord. You see, he had fooled an entire nation. An entire nation have been fooled. He seemingly got away with his sin. No one else knew about his sin, but there was one problem. God knew about his sin. You know, there are times when we feel like we've gotten away with it. Have you ever felt like you got away with it? Don't raise your hand. Just say ouch. Have you ever felt like, you know, no one caught me. My friends don't know. My spouse doesn't know. My kids don't know. My prayer partner doesn't even know. But there is one who always knows, and his name is Jesus. So God was displeased, and this 
is David's dilemma and problem. And it's in the midst of all of this brokenness that God tells David to pen this psalm. Let's look at it together. Verse number one. And you see the, the subscript that's there at the top to the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had come, uh, gone into Bathsheba. Imagine that being at the top of your hymn today. A record for all the sea of the sin of a man that led to restoration so that we in our sin might know God's restoration. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Let me, let me start this again. I want you to do me a favor. I just want you to close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to think about your own sin, your own guiltiness, and think about these words and how powerful they are. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me, away from your, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God, out of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifice and burnt offerings and a whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." can open your eyes. What's clear here is that this is a man who is um, not in denial over his sin. And uh, he's in a broken place. And I just want to say this based off of the cultural moment that we're in. Some sociologist has called uh, American religion uh, therapeutic moralistic deism. That's a big way of saying that we believe in a God who exists, maybe created all things, but is somehow detached from the day-to-day realities of our lives. We are most concerned about our psychological and mental well-being. And in a religion like that, the worst thing a preacher like me can do is make you feel bad. 
that the worst thing, the cardinal sin of a church that wants to grow is to make people feel bad. And in this um, culture that we're in, feeling bad is something that we have uh, diagnosed as being an illness that no one should ever have to suffer through. And so we got a pill for that. If you feel bad enough, We'll get, we got a pill for that. And that's not to minimize the reality, the weight and reality of uh, genuine depression and anxiety. But yet for some, the feeling bad that you're feeling is because of the need for repentance. It's because of your sin. And the best thing I can do is to, to uh, preach to you today about the joy of conviction. As a matter of fact, if you are one of those wonderful kids taking notes, that's the first line you should fill out in the kids' notes. Or if you're an adult that likes crayons, the joy of confession. There's a joy here, and what we discover in David's confession is that confession brings about uh, this, this sense of cleansing and joy. Cleansing and joy come through confession. That as we confess our sins before God, that joy and that cleansing that we were separated from because of our sin is restored to us. Now, there are four stanzas in this great poem. I want to pick up in stanza number two with the first point because he lays out three steps to restore restoration. The first step is know and own your sin. Know and own your sin. Look at verses three through six with me again. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the end were uh, being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David starts this stanza by saying these words, for I know my transgressions. David didn't deny his transgressions. He, he didn't deny his sin. You see, even though he had tricked a nation, he knew that he was wrong before God. He knew his own sin before God. My friends, don't wait for someone else to have to expose your sin. You know where you've fallen short. I know where I need to repent. And here's what David said even further. He says, and my sin is ever before me. David here is acknowledging the fact that um, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about it. As I go throughout my day, I'm thinking about it. As I, as I lay down at night, I'm thinking about it. Have you ever had a sin that seemed to plague you everywhere you went? You know, this is God's grace to us. I, I wish we could understand the, the power of conviction, the, the love of God that he's giving you a conscience. You know, a conscience is like feeling heat before a flame. Praise God that you feel the heat before the flame because if you didn't feel the heat before the flame, you would leave your hand on the fire and your hand would be burned and even destroyed. 
But praise God that God warns us in our conscience that if you keep going this way, you will be utterly destroyed. David felt this conviction. He says, I can't concentrate at work. I can't eat when the meal is served before me. I can't sleep and rest in peace because my sin is ever before me. And then he says these really strange words unless you understand the gospel. He says, against you, you alone have I sinned. Against you and you alone. Well, wait a minute, David. What do you mean between, uh, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned? You, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against your nation. Sinned against the army and the military. Surely the baby that died uh, as a result of this sin, you sinned against that child. So how can David say against you and you alone? Was he trying to minimize the sin? No. No, David understood something that was deep and that was profound, and that is that all sin, first and foremost, is a sin against God. And then it's a sin against my brother or my sister. This means, my friend, whatever sin you're of in your mind cannot be solved first and foremost on a horizontal level. You know, we can think about all the uh, social sins uh, from classism to sexism to racism, and the fundamental problem is that most movements are trying to solve these things on a horizontal level. David understood, unless I reconcile first with God, I will never be able to reconcile with you. Take it out of social, uh, broader categories and bring it into personal relationships. Unless I get my heart right with God, I can't get right with my wife. Unless I get my heart right with God, I can't get right with my children. I have to first say, God, cleanse me so that I might be able to have right relationship with others. David got it right. That all sin is first and foremost a sin against a holy and righteous God. Notice how he ends this stanza. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part, not just the image of success. God looks at the heart. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That term or phrase or word in the Hebrew, secret heart, can be translated or gives reference to the deep parts of the soul. Uh, David is giving us an image, a word image. At least his original audience would have understood it this way, as a word image into the deep recesses, the dark parts of his soul. God wants truth in the dark parts of our soul. In other words, when we invite God into our lives, you know, this, it's often kind of this type of thing where God, welcome into my life, and, and you're allowed into this room and this room, but don't ever open that closet, right? God says, no, I want that closet. Nope, I want to go in the room that you have locked off to everyone else. Mom doesn't know. Friends don't know. Prayer partner doesn't know. That's where I need to be. Have you ever tried to find something in the dark? You know, I am uh, uh, blessed and afflicted to have these glasses. And, uh, and I, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I don't have these glasses, I may start, up, start uh, upstairs and end up downstairs, right? <laughs> Trying to get to the bathroom a few feet away. 
the fact of the matter is, is that I am almost blind without them. And have you ever, maybe you have glasses like me, been groping around, knocking things over, the lamp and all those things uh, in the dark, looking for something that was important. And then the light comes on. Oh, glorious day. You can finally see what you're looking for. You know, there are certain times in our lives when the peace we're looking for, the joy we're looking for seems so elusive. And what God wants to do is shine light on our sin. Satan thrives in the darkness. Satan thrives in the secrecy of your sin. If you really want to kick Satan out of your life, tell on yourself. Confess your sins before God. And I know it's not a popular thing to do, but I will tell you it is David's recommendation to the assembly. It says, if David is writing this saying, listen, I found peace after my sin. And if you want peace, let me tell you how to experience it. Second, uh, the, the next stanza gives us a second point here, that if we're going to have peace with God again, if we're going to experience the cleansing and joy that comes through confession, not only do we need to know our own and own uh, your sin, you need to beg for inner transformation. Look at what David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Then he asked God to hide his face from his sin. Then he asked God to create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit with, within me. David starts this stanza off my, by making a reference to, to hyssop. And um, again, time doesn't permit me to give you a full history, but this is the instrument that was used to sprinkle blood on the doorpost. Israel during the exodus so that the deaf angel would pass by. This is the same uh, instrument that's used to help to cleanse lepers of their external filthiness. This is something that the priests would use if somebody was considered ceremonially unclean. They would be the ones to administer. And what David is saying is that God, my sin, again, is this is so profound, my sin is so bad that I don't need a priest to administer to hyssop. I need you, God. I need you to purge me of my sin with hyssop. I need you to sprinkle the blood on my heart directly. I don't even think David knew what he was talking about because what he was doing was prophesying of our Savior that God would send his son, Jesus, who would sprinkle the blood on our hearts. It would not be administered by priests, but how many thank God that salvation comes Comes from Christ and Christ alone, that he purges us of our sin. You need to praise God for this because here's the reality is that David was due the wrath of God. You and I are due the wrath of God. We don't preach much on the wrath of God, but it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He placed the wrath of God on our Christ on that cross, giving us a pathway to not only reconciliation, but grace and mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. And so David says, I, I can't, I can't afford the penalty for this. I can't repay. What do I repay? A baby has died. A, a soldier has died. A, a woman has been violated. A, a nation has been deceived. Even if I give everything, I still wouldn't be able to repay it. So God, the only thing I can do is throw myself on your mercy. 
throw, throw myself in your mercy, not because I deserve it and that hyssop that cleanse, cleanses away leprosy and sickness. I need it. I need it for my own heart. And maybe some of you today, you need it for your own heart. And what is beautiful, again, is that this private poem is read corporately for Israel, meaning God is no respecter of persons. Meaning that anyone in the assembly who called upon the name of the Lord could receive this cleansing. Then he says, God, look away from my sin and create in me a clean heart. Maybe you need God to create in you a clean heart. Here's the beautiful thing is that he does make all things new. Let me quickly close. And then he comes to verse 13. And there's a third point there. And this is the celebration. Celebrate God's salvation He says, Lord, if you cleanse me, if you create a clean heart within me, then I will teach transgression your ways and sinners will return to you. Look at what his celebration is. His celebration is over his forgiveness. And once you've been forgiven, what's the proper response, my friends? It is to tell others how to be forgiven. That's why I love this definition of evangelism. Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. How many praise God for that, right? Salvation is not me being better than someone else and lording it over them. It's not the story of my perfection. No, it's the opposite. It's the story of my weakness, my brokenness, my sin, the forgiveness I found in Jesus, and it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And David said, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Again, what's a response to your forgiveness to sing to the Lord? Sing to the Lord. When worship is going forth and singing is happening, all of us are duty bound to sing. And, you know, we're allowed to have personality differences outside of worship. You could be an introvert. I can be an extrovert. But once the moment of singing praise happens before the Lord, how many know we're all required to sing praises to Jesus? And the church said, and I'll ask my introverted friends for forgiveness afterwards. The next verse, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise Now, this is interesting. The next verse, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Here's Israel's uh, system uh, have been based off of the sacrifice of bulls and rams and and, uh, goats and other animals before the Lord. But it was an interesting system because it was never intended to be um, a sacrifice that ultimately appeased God. The sacrifices of animals pointed to an ultimate sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice of a savior, the lamb of God, Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah, who hung on the cross for our sins. And if you want 
Let me teach transgressors his ways. If we want restore relationship with God, it is through the sacrifice of Jesus, his Messiah, his Christ that has been given to us for our salvation. And as we turn to him in faith and in repentance, he does cleanse our hearts. What God is looking for is not for you to earn your salvation. There's no work that you can do. It is by faith and trust in him and through a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God is pleased. What God wants is simply the humility that comes from us saying, God, again, against you and you alone have I sinned, but I trust you that you can restore the joy of my salvation. God did that for David. God restored the joy of his salvation. He restored relationship. And what do we read of David at the end? Not about his sin, but that he was a man after God's own heart. How many want that testimony for your life? That he had intimacy with God. Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because we come before the Lord with confession. And as we do, he cleanses us and he restores the joy of our salvation. I want you to stand with us today. I'm going to pray over us as we prepare uh, to close. But as we prepare to close, this is a corporate moment. And in this corporate moment, um, there was a prayer from the common book of prayers that I would love for us to recite together. I'll read um, a few of these words and then you just repeat after me. Say, Almighty God, Unto you do we freely give our confession. Pardon all who repent and turn to you. Fulfill, O Lord, in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace. Forgive all our sins and cleanse us of an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Father, we just ask that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would restore relationship, and that you, the Lord, would deliver us from the course of sin that we're on so that we might be able to honor you, to know your joy and your peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.